Section 36 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ken Campbell. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A.G. Carter. Section 36, Volume 2, Chapter 16. The Voyage of the Fram. At Buenos Aires, from Buenos Aires to the Ross Barrier, and from the Barrier to Buenos Aires by Hobart, by First Lieutenant Thorvald Nelson. At Buenos Aires. To arrive at Buenos Aires in the early part of 1911 was not an unmixed pleasure, especially when one had no money. The Fram expedition was apparently not very popular at that time, and our cash balance amounted to about 40 pesos, about 3 pounds 10 shillings. But that would not go very far. Our supply of provisions had shrunk to almost nothing, and we had not enough to be able to leave the port. I had been told that a sum had been placed to the credit of the Fram for our stay in Buenos Aires, but I neither saw nor heard anything of it while we were there, and it was no doubt somewhat imaginary. If we were to be at all able to go down and take off the shore party, money must be found. We had come to the end of sailcloth and ropes. We had too little food and a minimum of oil. All this would have to be provided. At the worst, the oceanographical crews could be cut out, and we could lie still at Buenos Aires. Then, as our comrades could not very well be left to perish on the ice, enough would have to be sent us from Norway to enable us to go down there. But that would finish the whole expedition, as in such a case the Fram had orders to go back to Norway. As usual, however, the Fram's luck helped her again. A few days before we left Norway, our distinguished compatriot in Buenos Aires, Don Pedro Christofferson, had cabled that he would supply us with what provisions we might require, if, after leaving Madeira, we would call at Buenos Aires. Of course, he did not know at the time that the voyage would be extended to include the South Pole, and that the Fram, on arrival at Buenos Aires, would be almost empty instead of having a full cargo. But that did not prevent his helping us. I immediately called on him and his brother, the Norwegian minister. Fortunately, they were both very enthusiastic about our chief's change of plan. When, on a subsequent occasion, I expressed my astonishment at not hearing from home, I was told that the funds of the expeditions were exhausted, and Mr. Christofferson promised me, on hearing what straits we were in, to pay all of our expenses in Buenos Aires, and to supply us with provisions and fuel. That brought us out of our difficulties at a bound, and we had no more need to take thought of the morrow. Everyone on board received a sum of money for his personal expenses from the Norwegian colony of the River Plate, and we were invited to their dinner on Independence Day, May 17th. Our second stay at Buenos Aires was very pleasant. Everyone was amiability itself, and festivities were even got up for us. We took on board provisions that had been sent out from Norway by Mr. Christofferson's orders. About 50,000 liters, that's 11,000 gallons of petroleum ship stores, and so on, enough for a year. But this was not all. Just before we sailed, Mr. Christofferson said he would send a relief expedition if the Fram did not return to Australia by a certain date. But, as everyone knows, this was happily unnecessary. During the next three weeks, we were lying at the quay in Buenos Aires. We were occupied in getting everything on board and making the vessel ready for sea. 
We had finished this by the afternoon of Wednesday, October 4th, and next morning the Fram was ready to continue her second circumnavigation of the globe. In Buenos Aires we lay at the same quay as the Deutschland, the German Antarctic expedition ship. A. Kuchain and second engineer J. Notvet went home, and Seaman J. Anderson was discharged. From Buenos Aires to the Ross Barrier On the trip from Buenos Aires to the Barrier, the watches were divided as follows. From 8 to 2, T. Nelson, L. Hansen, H. Halverson, and A. Olson. From 2 to 8, H. Gerritsen, A. Beck, M. Ronnie, and F. Staller. In the engine room, K. Sunbeck and H. Christensen. Lastly, K. Olson Cook. In all, 11 men. It has been said that well begun is half done, and it almost seems as if a bad beginning were likely to have a similar continuation. When we left the northern basin on the morning of October 5th, there was a headwind, and it was not till 24 hours later that we could drop the pilot at the Recalada lightship. After a time it fell calm, and we made small progress down the river La Plata, until on the night of the 6th we were clear of the land, and the lights disappeared on the horizon. Properly speaking, we ought to have been in the west wind belt as soon as we came out, and the drift of the clouds and the movement of the barograph were examined at least 24 times a day, but it still remained calm. At last, after the lapse of several days, we had a little fresh southwesterly wind with hail showers. And then, of course, I thought we had made a beginning, but unfortunately it only lasted a night, so that our joy was short-lived. We took with us from Buenos Aires 15 live sheep and 15 live little pigs, of which two houses were built on the afterdeck. As, however, one of the pigs was found dead on the morning after the southwesterly breeze just mentioned, it was assumed that this was on account of the cold, and another house was at once built for them between the decks, in the workroom, where it was very warm. They were down here the whole time, but as their house was cleaned out twice a day and dry straw put on the floor, they did not cause us much inconvenience, besides which their house was raised more than a half a foot above the deck itself, so that the space below could always be kept clean. The pigs thrived so well down here that we could almost see them growing, on arrival at the barrier, we had no fewer than nine alive. The sheep had a weather-tight house with a tarpaulin over the roof, and they grew fatter and fatter. We had every opportunity of noticing this, as we killed one of them regularly every Saturday until we came into the pack ice and got seal meat. We had four sheep left on reaching the barrier. We did wretchedly in October. Calms and east winds, nothing but east winds. As regards distance, it was the worst month we had since leaving Norway. Notwithstanding that the Fram had been in dry dock, had a clean bottom and a light cargo. When close-hauled with any head sea, we scarcely move. A stiff air wind is what is wanted if we are to get on. Someone said we got on so badly because we had 13 pigs on board. Another said it was because we caught so many birds and I had caught no less than fourteen albatross and four cape pigeons. Altogether there is quite enough of what I will call superstition at sea. One particular bird brings fine weather, another storms. It is very important to notice which way the whale swims or the dolphin leaps. The success of seal hunting depends on whether the first seal is seen ahead or astern, and so on. Enough of that. 
October went out and November came in with a fresh breeze from the south-southwest, so that we did nine and a half knots. This promised well for November, but the promise was scarcely fulfilled. We had northerly wind or southerly wind continually, generally a little to the east of north or south, and I believe I am not saying too much when I state that in the west wind belt, with an easterly course, we lay close-hauled on one track or the other for about two-thirds of the way. For only three days out of three months did we have real west wind, a wind which, with southwesterly and northwesterly winds, I had reckoned on having for 75% of the trip from Buenos Aires to about the longitude of Tasmania. In my enthusiasm over the west wind in question, I went so far as to write in my diary at 2 a.m. on November 11th. There is a gale from the west, and we are making nine knots with foresail and topsail. The sea is pretty high and breaking on both sides of the vessel, so that everything about us is a mass of spray. In spite of this, not a drop of water comes on deck, and it is so dry that the watch are going about in clogs. For my part, I am wearing felt slippers, which will not stand wet. Sea boots and oil skins hang ready in the chart house in case it should rain. On a watch like tonight, when the moon is kind enough to shine, everyone on deck is in the best of humors, whistling, chattering, singing. Somebody comes up with a remark that she took that sea finely, or now she's flying properly. Fine is almost too feeble an expression. One ought to say lightly and elegantly when speaking of the Fram, what more can one wish, etc.? But whatever time Adam may have spent in paradise, we were not there more than three days when the same wretched state of things began again. What I wrote when there was a headwind or a calm I should be sorry to reproduce. Woe to him who then came and said it was fine weather. It was lucky for us that the Fram sails so much more easily now than it did in 1910. Otherwise we should have taken six months to reach the barrier. When we had wind, we used it to the utmost, but we did not do this without the loss of one or two things. The new jib sheep broke a couple of times, and one night we carried away the outer bobstay on the jib boom. The foresail and the topsail were neither made fast nor reefed during the whole trip. The last time the jib sheet broke, there was a strong breeze from the southwest with a heavy sea. All sail was set with the exception of the spanker as the ship would not steer with that. There was an extra preventer on the double jib sheet, but in spite of that the sheets broke and the jib was split with a fearful crack. Within a minute the mainsail and the gaff topsail were hauled down so that the ship might fall off and the jib hauled down. This was instantly unbent and a new one bent. The man at the helm, of course, got the blame. For this, and for the first thing he said to me was, I couldn't help it. She was twisting on the top of a wave. We were then making ten knots, and more than that we shall not do. The Fram rolled well that day, a little earlier in the afternoon at two o'clock, when the watch had gone below to dinner and were just eating the sweet, which on that occasion consisted of preserved pears. We felt that there was an unusually big lurch coming. Although, of course, we had fiddles on the table, the plates with meat, potatoes, and so on jumped over the fiddles, she didn't care a button for into Beck's cabin. I caught one of the pears in its flight, but the plate with the rest of them went on its way. Of course there was a great shout of laughter, which stopped dead as we heard a violent noise on deck, over our heads. I guessed at once it was an empty water tank that had broken loose, 
and with my mouth full of pear I yelled, Tank! and flew on the deck with the whole watch below at my heels. A sea had come in over the after-deck, and had lifted the tank up from its lashings. All hands threw themselves upon the tank, and held on to it till the water had poured off the deck, when it was again fixed in its place. When this was done, my watch went below again, and lit their pipes, as if nothing had happened. On November 13th we passed the northernmost of the Prince Edward Islands, and on the 18th, close to the Penguin Island, the most southwesterly of the Crozerts. In the neighborhood of the latter, we saw a great quantity of birds, a number of seals and penguins, and even a little iceberg. I went close to the land to check the chronometers, which an observation and bearing of the island showed to be correct. Our course was then laid for Krugerlin Island, but we went too far north to see it, as for two weeks the winds was southeasterly and southerly, and the leeway we made when sailing close-hauled took us every day a little to the north of east. When we were in the same waters in 1910, there was a gale after gale. Then we did not put in at Krugelin on account of the force of the wind. This time we could not approach the island because of the wind's direction. In no respect can the second trip be compared with the first. I should never have dreamed that there would be so much difference in the roaring forties in two different years at the same season. In the foggy fifties the weathers was calm and fine, and we had no fog until latitude fifty-eight degrees south. As regards to the distance sailed, November 1911 is the best month the Fram has had. In December, which began with a speed of one and a half knots, calm swell against us, and the engine at full speed, we had a fair wind for three days, all the rest calms and headwinds. The first part of the month from the northeast and east, so that we came much too far south. Even in longitude 150 degrees east, we were in latitude 60 degrees south. In Christmas week, we had calms and light winds from the southeast, so that we managed to steal eastwards to longitude 170 degrees east and latitude 65 degrees south where, on the edge of the pack ice, we had a stiff breeze from the north-northeast, that is, straight on to the ice. Between Buenos Aires and the pack ice, we caught, as I had said, a good many birds, mostly albatross, and about thirty skins were prepared by L. Hansen. The largest albatross we got measured twelve feet between the tips of its wings, and the smallest bird was of a land species, not much bigger than a hummingbird. Talking of albatross, it is both amusing and interesting to watch their elegant flight in a high wind. Without a movement of the wings, they sail, now with, now against the wind, and one instant they touch the surface of the water with the points of their wings. At the next they go straight into the air like an arrow. An interesting and instructive study for an aviator. In a wind where there is generally a number of them hovering about the vessel, they will dash down after anything that is thrown overboard. But, of course, it is useless to try and catch them when the ship is so much way. This must be done the next day when the wind is lighter. The birds are caught with an iron triangle, which ought to be enclosed in wood, so that they will float on the water. At the apex, which is very acute, the iron is filled as sharp as a knife. A pork is hung on each side of the sides. When this is thrown into the wake of the ship, the bird settles on the water to feed. The upper part of his beak is hooked like that of a bird of prey, and as the albatross opens its beak to bite at the pork, you give it a jerk so that the triangle catches the upper part of the beak by two small notches. 
and the bird is left hanging. If the line should break, the whole thing simply falls off and the bird is unharmed. In hauling in, therefore, you have to be very careful to hold the line quite tight, even if the bird flies towards you, otherwise it will easily fall off. A bird may be pulled halfway in several times, and will immediately take the bait again. On the night of December 11th, an unusually beautiful aurora was seen. It lasted over an hour, and moved in a direction from west to east. On the 14th, all the white paint was washed. The temperature was 43 degrees Fahrenheit, and we were in shirt sleeves. For a whole week before Christmas, the cook was busy baking Christmas cakes. I am bound to say he is industrious, and the day before Christmas Eve, one of the little pigs named Tula was killed. The swineherd, A. Olson, whose special favorite this pig was, had to be kept away during this operation, that we might not witness his emotion. Early on the morning of Christmas Eve, we saw the three first icebergs. There was an absolute calm all day with misty air. To keep Christmas, the engine was stopped at 5 p.m., and then all hands came to dinner. Unfortunately, we had no gramophone to sing to us as in 1910. As a substitute, the orchestra played Gladjul and Helgejul when all were seated. The orchestra was composed of Beck on the violin, Sunbeck on the mandolin, and the undersigned on the flute. I puffed out my cheeks as much as I could, and that is not saying a little so that the others might see how proficient I was. I hardly think it was much of a musical treat, but the public was neither critical nor ceremonious, and the prevalent costume was jerseys. The dinner consisted of soup, roast pork, with fresh potatoes and whole berries, ten-year-old aquavit and Norwegian bock beer, followed by wine jelly and cranzen cake with champagne. The toast to their majesties, the king and queen Don Pedro Christofferson, Captain Amundsen, and the Fram were drunk. I had decorated the saloon in a small way with artificial flowers, embroideries, and a flag to give a little color. Dinner was followed by cigars and a distribution of Christmas presents. El Hansen played the accordion, and Lieutenant Gerritsen and Ronnie danced folk dances. The latter was, as usual, so amusing that he kept us in fits of laughter. At ten o'clock it was all over. The engine was started again, one watch went to bed, and the other on deck. Olsen cleaned out the pigsty, as usual, at this time of night. That finished Christmas for this year. As it was said before, Sir James Ross was down here in the 1840s. Two years in succession he sailed from the Pacific into Ross Sea with two ships that had no auxiliary steam power. I assumed, therefore, that if he could get through so easily, there must be some place between the South Victoria land and the barrier, or land on the other side, where there was a little or no ice. Following this assumption, I intended to go down to the western pack ice, that laying off South Victoria land, and steer along until we were in the Ross Sea, or, at all events, until we found a place where we could easily get through. It is quite possible that Ross was very lucky in the time at which he encountered the ice, and that he only sailed in clear weather. We had no time to spare, however, but we had to make use of whatever wind there was, even if we could not see very far. As early as December 28th at 5 p.m., in latitude 65 degrees south and longitude 171.5 degrees east, 
it was reported that we were off the pack. I was a good deal surprised, as recent expeditions had not met the pack until 66.5 degrees south, or about 100 nautical miles farther south, nor had there been any signs of our being so near the ice. The wind for the last few days had been southeasterly, but for the moment it was calm. We therefore held on to the east along the edge of the pack, with the ice to starboard. About midnight the winds freshened from the north, and we lay close-hauled along the edge of the ice until midday on the 29th, when the direction of the ice became more southerly. The northerly wind, which gradually increased to a stiff breeze, was good enough for getting us on, but it must inevitably bring fog and snow in its train. These came, sure enough, as thick as a wall, and for a couple of days we sailed perfectly blindly. Outside the pack ice proper lie long streams of flows and loose scattered lumps, which became more frequent as one nears the pack. For two days we sailed simply by the lumps of ice. The more of them we saw, the more easterly was our course, until they began to decrease when we steered more to the south. In this way we went into 48 hours from latitude 65 degrees south and longitude 174 degrees east, to latitude 69 degrees south and longitude 178 degrees east, a distance of about 250 nautical miles, without entering the pack. Once we very nearly went into the trap, but fortunately got out again. The wind was so fresh, we did as much as eight and a half knots. When the sailing at such a rate through a loose stream of ice, we sometimes ran upon a flow, which went under the ship's bottom, and then came up alongside the other way up. During the afternoon of the 31st, the streams of ice became closer and closer, and then I made a mistake of continuing to sail to the eastward. Instead of this, I ought to have stood off and steered due south, or to the west of south, with this ice on our port side. The farther we advanced, the more certain I was that we had come into the eastern pack ice. It must be remembered, however, that owing to fog and thick snow we had seen nothing for over two days. Observations there were none. Of course, our speed had varied between two and eight and a half knots, and we had steered all manner of courses. That our dead reckoning was not very correct in such circumstances goes without saying, and an observation on January 2nd showed us that we were somewhat farther to the east than we had reckoned. On the evening of December 31st, the fog lifted for a while, and we saw nothing but ice all round. Our course was then set due south. We had come right down in latitude 69.5 degrees south, and I hoped soon to be clear altogether. In 1910, we got out of the ice at 70 degrees south, and were then in the same longitude as now. Now, indeed, our progress began to slow, and the old year went out in a far from pleasant fashion. The fog was so thick that I may safely say we did not see more than fifty yards from the ship, whereas we ought to have had the midnight sun. Ice and snow sludge were so thick that at times we lay still. The wind had unfortunately fallen off, but we still had a little breeze from the north so that both sails and engine could be used. We went simply at haphazard. Now and then we were lucky enough to come into great open channels and even lakes, but then the ice closed again absolutely tight. It could hardly be called real ice, however, but was rather a snow sludge, about two feet thick and as tough as dough. 
It looked as if it had all just been broken off a single thick mass. The floes lay close together, and we could see how one flow fitted into the other. The ice remained more or less closed until we were right down in latitude 73 degrees south and longitude 179 degrees west. The last part of it was old drift ice. From here to the Bay of Wales we saw a few scattered streams of flows and some icebergs. A few seals were shot in the ice so that we had fresh meat enough and could save the sheep and pigs until a shore party came on board. I was sure they would appreciate fresh roast pork. The chart of Ross Sea had been drawn chiefly as a guide to future expeditions. It may be taken as certain that the best place to go through the ice is between longitude 176 degrees east and 180 degrees, and that the best time is about the beginning of February. Take, for instance, our southward route in 1911 and 1912. As has been said, the ice was met with as early as 65 degrees south, and we were not clear of it until about 73 degrees south, between 68 degrees south and 69 degrees south. The line is interrupted, and it was there that I ought to have steered to the south. Now follow the course from the Bay of Wales in 1912. Only in about 75 degrees south was ice seen, almost as in 1911, and we followed it. After that time we saw absolutely no more ice, as the chart shows, Therefore, in the course of about a month and a half, all the ice that we met when going south had drifted out. The snippled line shows how I assume the ice to have been laid. The heavy broken line shows what our course ought to have been. The midnight sun was not seen till the night of January 7, 1912. To the south of latitude 77 degrees south, it was already 9.5 degrees above the horizon. On the night of January 8th, we arrived off the barrier in extremely bitter weather. Southwesterly and southerly winds had held for a few days, with fair weather, but that night there was a thick snow, and the wind gradually fell calm, after which a fresh breeze sprang up from the southeast with biting snow, and at the same time a lot of drift ice. The engine went very slowly, and the ship kept head to wind, about midnight the weather cleared a little, and a dark line, which proved to be the barrier, came in sight. The engine went ahead at full speed, and the sails were set, so that we might get under the lee of the perpendicular wall. By degrees the ice blink above the barrier became lighter and lighter, and before very long we were so close under it that we only just had room to go about. The barrier here runs east and west, and with a southeasterly wind we went along it to the east. The watch had gone below at eight o'clock, when we were still in open sea, came up again at two to find us close to the long-desired wall of ice. Some hours passed in the same way, but then, of course, the wind became easterly, dead ahead, so that we had to tack and tack until six p.m., the same day when we were at the western point of the Bay of Wales. The ice lay right out to the West Cape, and we sailed across the mouth of the bay and up under the lee of the eastern barrier, in order, if possible, to find slack ice or open water. But no, the fast ice came just as far on that side. It turned out that we could not get farther south than 78 degrees 30 minutes, that is 11 nautical miles farther north in the previous year, and no less than 15 nautical miles from Framheim taking into consideration the turn in the bay. We were thus back at the same place we had left on February 14, 1911, 
and had since been round the world. The distance covered on this voyage of circumnavigation was 25,000 nautical miles, of which 8,000 belonged to the oceanographical cruise in the South Atlantic. We did not lie under the lee of the eastern barrier for more than four hours. The wind, which had so often been against us, was true to its principles to the last. Of course, it went to the north and blew right up the bay. The drift ice from the Ross Sea came in, and at midnight, January 9th through 10th, we stood out again. I had thought of sending a man up to Frondheim to report that we had arrived, but the state of the weather did not allow it. Besides, I had only one pair of private ski on board, and should therefore only have been able to send one man. It would have been better if several had gone together. During the forenoon of the 10th it gradually cleared. The wind fell light, and we stood inshore again. At the same time the barometer was rising steadily. Lieutenant Gerritsen was ashore on ski about one o'clock. Later in the afternoon a dog came running out across the sea ice, and I thought it had come down on Lieutenant Gerritsen's track, but I was afterwards told it was one of the half-wild dogs that ran about on the ice and did not show themselves up at the hunt. Meanwhile, the wind freshened again. We had to put out for another twenty-four hours and lay first one way and then the other with shortened sail. Then there was fine weather again, and we came in. At 4 p.m. on the 11th, Lieutenant Gerritsen returned with Lieutenant Prestude, Johansen, and Stuberud. Of course, we were very glad to see one another again, and all sorts of questions were asked on both sides. The chief of the southern party were not back yet. They stayed on board till the 12th, got their letters and a big pile of newspapers, and went ashore again. We followed them with the glasses as far as possible, so as to take them on board again if they could not get across the cracks in the ice. During the days that followed, we lay moored to the ice, or went out according to the weather. At 7 p.m. on the 16th, we were somewhat surprised to see a vessel bearing down. For my part, I guessed her to be the Aurora, Dr. Mawson's ship. She came very slowly, but at last, what should we see but the Japanese flag? I had no idea that the expedition was out again. The ship came right in and went past us twice and moored alongside the loose ice. Immediately afterwards, ten men armed with picks and shovels went up the barrier, while the rest rushed wildly about the penguins and their shots were heard all night. Next morning, the commander of the Kainimaru, whose name was Horoma, came on board. The same day, a tent was set up on the edge of the barrier, and cases, sledges, and so on were put out on the ice. Kani and Maru means, I have been told, the ship that opens the south. Preston and I went on board her later in the day to see what she was like, but we met neither the leader of the expedition nor the captain of the ship. Preston had the cinematograph apparatus with him, and a lot of photographs were also taken. The leader of the Japanese expedition has written somewhere or other that the reason the Shackleton's losing all his ponies was that the ponies were not kept in tents at night and had to lie outside. He thought the ponies ought to be in the tents and the men outside. From this one would think that they were great lovers of animals, but I must confess that was not the impression I received. They had put penguins into little boxes to take them alive to Japan. Round about the deck lay dead and half-dead skier gulls in heaps. On the ice close to the vessel was a seal ripped open with parts of his entrails on the ice, but the seal was still alive. Neither Prestrud nor I had any sort of weapon that we could kill the seal with. 
so we asked the Japanese to do it, but they only grinned and laughed. A little way off, two of them were coming across the ice with a seal in front of them. They dove on it with two long poles of which they pricked it when it would not go. If it fell into a crack, they dug it up again as you would see men quarrying stone at home. It had not enough life in it to be able to escape its tormentors. All this was accompanied by laughter and jokes. On arrival at the ship, the animal was nearly dead, and it was left there till it expired. On the 19th, we had a fresh southwesterly wind, and a lot of ice went out. The Japanese were occupied most of the night in going round among the floes and picking up men, dogs, cases, and so on, as they had put a good deal on the ice in the course of the day. As the ice came out, so the Fram went in right up to latitude 78 degrees 35 minutes south, while the Karnan Maru drifted farther and farther out, till at last she disappeared. Nor did we see the vessel again, but a couple of men with a tent stayed on the barrier as long as we were in the bay. On the night of the 24th there was a stiff breeze from the west, and we drifted so far out in the thick snow that it was only on the afternoon of the 27th that we could make our way and again through a mass of ice. In the course of these two days, so much ice had broken up that we came right in at latitude 78 degrees 39 minutes south, or almost to Framheim, and that was very lucky. As we stood in over the Bay of Wales, we caught sight of a big Norwegian naval insignia flying on the barrier at Cape Man's Head, and then I knew that the southern party had arrived. We went, therefore, as far south as possible, and blew out our powerful siren. Nor was it very long before eight men came tearing down. There was great enthusiasm. The first man on board was the chief. I was so certain that he had reached the goal that I never asked him, nor till an hour later, when we had discussed all kinds of other things, did I inquire, Well, of course you have been at the South Pole? We lay there for a couple of days on account of the short distance from Framheim, provisions, outfit, etc. were brought on board. If such great masses of ice had not drifted out in the last few days, it would probably have taken us a week or two to get the same quantity on board. At 9.30 p.m. on January 30, 1912, in a thick fog, we took our moorings on board and waved a last farewell to the mighty barrier. From the barrier to Buenos Aires via Hobart. The first day after our departure from the barrier, everything we had taken on board was stowed away, so that one would not have thought our numbers were doubled, or that we had taken several hundred cases and a lot of outfit on board. The change was only noticed on deck, where thirty nine powerful dogs made an uproar all day long, and in the fore saloon, which was entirely changed. This saloon had been deserted for about a year, it was now full of men, and it was a pleasure to be there, especially as everyone had something to tell, the chief of his trip, Prestude of his, and Gerritsen and I of the Fram's. However, there was not very much time for yawning, and the chief at once began writing cablegrams and lectures which Prestude and I translated into English, and the chief then copied again on a typewriter. In addition to this, I was occupied the whole time in drawing charts, so that on arrival at Hobart everything was ready. The time passed quickly, and the voyage was fearfully long. As regards to the pack ice, we were extremely lucky. 
It lay in exactly the same spot where we had met it in 1911, that is, in about latitude 75 degrees south. We went along the edge of it for a very short time, and then it was done with. To the north of 75 degrees we saw nothing but a few small icebergs. We made terribly slow progress to the northward. How slow may be perhaps understood if I quote my diary for February 27th. This trip is slower than anything we have had before. Now and then we manage an average rate of two knots an hour in a day's run. In the last four days we have covered a distance that before would have been too little for a single day. We have been at it now for nearly a month and are still only between latitude 52 degrees and 53 degrees south. Gales from the north are almost the order of the day, etc. However, it is an ill wind that blows nobody any good, and the time well was employed with all we had to do. After five weeks' struggle, we had at last reached Hobart and anchored in the splendid harbor on March 7th. Our fresh provisions from Buenos Aires just lasted out. The last of the fresh potatoes were finished a couple of days before our arrival, and the last pig was killed when we had been at Hobart for two days. The Fram had remained here for thirteen days, which were chiefly spent in repairing the propeller and cleaning the engine. In addition to this, the topsail yard, which was nearly broken in the middle, was spliced, as we had no opportunity of getting a new one. The first week was quiet on board, as, owing to the circumstances, there were no communications with the shore. But after that, the ship was full of visitors, so that we were not very sorry to get away again. Twenty-one of our dogs were presented to Dr. Marson, the leader of the Australian expedition, and only those dogs that had been to the South Pole and a few puppies, eighteen in all, were left on board. While we lay in Hobart, Dr. Marston's ship, the Aurora, came in. I went aboard her one day, and have thus been on board the vessels of all the present Antarctic expeditions, on the Terra Nova, the British, on February 14, 1911, in the Bay of Wales, on the Deutschland, the German, in September and October 1911, in Buenos Aires, on the Kenemaru, the Japanese, on January 17, 1912, in the Bay of Wales, and finally on the Aurora in Hobart, not forgetting the Fram, which, of course, I think best of all. On March 20th, the Fram weighed anchor and left Tasmania. We made very poor progress to begin with, as we had calms for nearly three weeks, in spite of it being the month of March in the west wind belt of the South Pacific. On the morning of Easter Sunday, April 7th, the wind first freshened from the northwest and blew day after day, a stiff breeze and a gale alternately, so that we went splendidly all the way to the Falkland Islands, in spite of the fact that the topsail was reefed for nearly five weeks on account of the fragile state of the yarn. I believe most of us wanted to get on fast. The trip is now over for the present, and those who had families at home naturally wanted to be with them as soon as they could. Perhaps that was why we went so well. On April 1st, Mrs. Snupson gave birth to eight pups for those were killed while the rest, two of each sex, were allowed to live. On Maudy Thursday, April 4th, we were in longitude 180 degrees and changed the date so that we had two Maudy Thursdays in one week. This gave us a good many holidays running, and I cannot say the effect is altogether cheerful. It was a good thing when Easter Tuesday came round as an ordinary weekday. 
On May 6 we passed Cape Horn, in very fair weather. It is true we had a snow squall of hurricane violence, but it did not last that much more than a half of an hour. For a few days the temperature was a little below freezing point, but it rose rapidly as soon as we were out in the Atlantic. From Hobart to Cape Horn we saw no ice. After passing the Falkland Islands we had a headwind, so that the last part of the trip was nothing to boast of. On the night of May 21st, we passed Montevideo, where the chief had arrived a few hours before. From here up the river La Plata, we went so slowly on account of the headwind that we did not anchor in the roads of Buenos Aires until the afternoon of the 23rd, almost exactly at the same time as the chief landed at Buenos Aires. When I went ashore the next morning, I met Mr. P. Christofferson. He was in great good humor. This is just like a fairy tale, he said and it could not have been denied that it was an amusing coincidence. The chief, of course, was equally pleased. On the 25th, the Argentine National Fete, the Fram was moored at the same quay that it had left on October 5th, 1911. At our departure, there were exactly seven people on board to say goodbye, but as far as I could see, there were more than this when we arrived and I was able to make out from the newspapers and other sources that in the course of a couple of months the Third Fram expedition had grown considerably in popularity. In conclusion, I will give one or two data. Since the Fram left Christina on June 7, 1910, we have been two and a half times around the globe. The distance covered is about 54,400 nautical miles, the lowest reading on the barometer during the time was 27.56 inches, 700 millimeters. In March 1911, the South Pacific and the highest 30.82 inches, 783 millimeters, in October 1911 in the South Atlantic. On June 7, 1912, the second anniversary of our leaving Christina, all the members of the expedition, except the chief and myself, left for Norway and the first half of the expedition was thus brought to a fortunate conclusion. End of section 36. End of the South Pole by Roll Amundsen. Recorded by Ken Campbell.